Let me start again, Veronica. God damn it. <laughs> okay. All right. One more time. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is Scream Sister. We are a podcast dedicated to Spanish language horror, scary movies, and scary books. I am your host, Valerie. And I'm Veronica. Almost <laughs> missed the cute. <laughs> and we are back. This is our 10th episode. So we wanted to give a special special moment of celebration for our 10 episodes. Really? It's 10 already? Yeah. So, wow. I mean, but, but I mean, it, it took us a while to get here. So I think we got started back in July. So we've been going since July of this year. And here we are now. By the time this airs, it'll be like last week of November. So it took us a while to get to 10 episodes because we only post every other Monday, but we did mm -hmm. it and we're here. And do we know any, 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 more about the podcasting process 10 episodes in? I don't. <laughs> nope. No, we don't. <laughs> we are laying the tracks before the train as it chugs down the <laughs> rail. Literally. But today we are we are talking about, I think this might be the oldest film that we've looked at so far that we've like actually said, okay, we're going to watch this and we're going to devote an episode to it. So not counting like, you know, when we've talked about Night of the Living Dead or Halloween or when I went on my little path down Nightmare on Elm Street, not counting those, but this this is, I think, one of the oldest movies we've looked at. So this one's over 20 years old, and it's one of Guillermo del Toro's films. So we'll be talking about that here in a little bit. But what I thought we could kind of open up with is, is talking about Guillermo del Toro's, his work. And so I was telling Ronnie right before we started the show, I embarrassingly, for being the big fan that I am, I haven't seen... Like, I've... It's not true. I've seen a lot of his movies, but I haven't seen all of them. And I haven't seen a lot of like his earlier stuff. And Veronica's actually seen quite a bit. So what we went and found, we found a, a list of all of his movies ranked from vulture.com. And we're going to be sure to include that in the show notes for you guys. So yeah, they ranked, and I don't, this is not his complete total filmography, I don't think. They, anyway, they listed the top 12, of which I've seen seven, possibly eight. At the number 12 spot is Mimic. Did you see that? I did. A long time okay. ago. Um, I never saw it. I know of it, but I never saw it. I did see it. I don't remember a whole, whole lot about it, other than it was some sort of bug that could mimic <laughs> like humans. So, and I know Mira Servino was in it. Yeah. Coming in at the number 11 spot is Blade 2. And this is where I'm not sure because I know I've seen a Blade movie. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if it was number two or not. I know that I've seen port I've I've seen plenty of the Blade films. I just don't know if I've seen any one of them all the way through. So mm. I don't know. I don't know. I would have to go back and look. I don't, but again, yeah. when I whenever whenever I saw that Blade movie, whichever one it was, it was also a long time ago. And which I did not know he did a Blade movie. Anyway, coming in either. at number ten is Pacific Rim, which I have seen. And in fact, my youngest son, Raphael, this was like his favorite movie for a long time. Everything was gypsy danger, gypsy danger. Because well, uh, well, I'm completely unfamiliar with Pacific Rim. Walk me through that. What is that one about? It stars Idris Elba, for one thing. That's enough reason to watch it right there. Right. Well, it's set in like a world that has kaijus, which is, you know, kind of the the Japanese word for like Godzilla, you know, those uh -huh, type uh -huh. of big type of monsters. Those are kaijus. And humanity has 
has kind of devised these huge, I, what are they? They're like suits of armor, like humongous, that they call Jaegers, and mm-hmm. that are piloted by two people, get in and, and pilot it and kind of move it around to battle the kaijus. So that's basically what the movie's about. I am not, but you know why I'm not familiar with this movie? Because it came out in 2013. I had a baby. Like I just <laughs> fell off the face of the earth. <laughs> I was firstborn baby land. Well, so, my baby yeah. loved that movie. Everything was Gypsy <laughs> Danger, Gypsy Danger, which was the name of the the Jaeger suit that, of course, our hero and pilots. <laughs> All right. And then I'll coming in at number nine is Hellboy, which I've I also seen. I do know seen. that one. Yeah, I do know yeah. that one. I've seen yeah. that one. Coming in at eight, which I'm not familiar with this one at all, Nightmare Alley. I'm familiar with it only because it came, I think it came out after uh, Shape of Water and, or some, yeah, sometime after Shape of Water. So I just remember like at that point, Shape of Water, he'd already won his Academy Award. So he was already like, things that he did were drawing more attention and more media focus. So like when mm-hmm. Nightmare Alley came out, I remember that got a lot of coverage because, you know, oh yeah, this is his next project after winning the Academy Award. So yeah, mm-hmm. but I didn't see it. I think that one had Bradley Cooper in it. Coming in at number seven is Crimson Peak with Tom I- Hiddleston. And I forget the name of the actress. This one I have also seen. Okay. So Jessica Chastain and then I Juli- forget. Yeah, I always want to say Julianne Moore. I get them confused. No. Jessica Chastain and Julianne. They're Not redheads. Remotely. <laughs> They're okay, kind wait. of both redheads. Okay, hold on. We're, we have to, the the woman, uh, we're going to shame on us for not knowing. Shame on me for not knowing. Crimson Peak. The other woman, ah, Mia Wasikowska, if I'm saying that right. Mia Wasikowska. I know that she did like the the uh, Alice, what, Alice, Alice in Wonderland, Wonderland with Johnny movies. I, I Crimson Peak I love. And, and I think you said you love it too, right? Yeah, or you I like it. it. I like the creatures in that movie. His monsters, what he's so known for. And then coming up at number six, so halfway through the list is Hillboy 2, The Golden Army, which I also saw that one. It was a good one, yeah. Uh, this number five, I haven't seen yet. I haven't it, seen uh, either. Kronos. Kronos. I think that was his first like major picture. And then his newest addition to his filmography, Pinocchio, which came mm-hmm. out, I think, just last year, 2022. But I, I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen that one either. Uh, number three, Devil's Backbone, which is our movie that we just watched and we'll be talking about in just a minute. Coming in at number two was The Shape of Water, which I also have not gotten around to watching yet. I didn't, I didn't watch that one either. And I wanted to specifically highlight this part of the article that they say, because I, I think that this was kind of, I thought like I can't claim myself a diehard fan, but I, I can claim this as the reason why I didn't necessarily gravitate towards seeing it. They say, we suspect that for diehard Del Toro fans, The Shape of Water is probably not among your favorite films from his filmography. And they put in parentheses, it's a little too polished and accessible. Uh, after all, part of Del Toro's charm is that like his characters, he operates on the margins. I am a fan, but I don't. I can't call myself a diehard fan. But I think that movie had like um, Octavia Spencer mm-hmm. and a couple of other people. So it just it struck me as more like. I guess just like mainstream, more Hollywood. So I didn't necessarily gravitate towards seeing it. Did it have romance as a big? It does have romance. You know me. That would turn me off right away. (laughs) And then number uh, one. Yes, the number one, Pan's Labyrinth, which I have also watched. It's that a was gorgeous, a movie, yeah. gorgeous movie. Be- beautiful movie. Yeah. Beautiful creatures. I, I like one of the things that that I really gravitate towards Guillermo del Toro for is is his cre- his monsters. His his creations are just so horrifying, but interesting, and in many ways, really beautiful to look at. And my goal in storytelling, I, I just want to like, I just want to be able to create creatures like him. Like I I just find the stuff that he dreams up very inspiring. So if I can dream up a monster that I think is is 
at that level, I, I will have done really, really well for myself. I will be very proud of myself. So that's, that's my goal. He's my goal when it comes to creating monsters. That can take us right into talking about our film. We are talking about 2001's El Espenazo del Diablo, or The Devil's Backbone, directed by Guillermo del Toro. And so that that's the film that, that came in at number three on the list. And so this one is, stars Marisa Paredes, Eduardo Noriega, Federico Lupe, if I'm saying that right, who also is in Cronos, which came out in 1993. And then uh, Fernando Dielve as Dielve. Carlos. Dielve. Yeah. yeah, as Carlos. Then here's a brief blurb on the film. So this is what I found online. After Carlos, a young boy whose father has died in the Spanish Civil War, after he arrives at an ominous boys' orphanage, he discovers the school is haunted and has many dark secrets. Ugh, and has many dark secrets which he must uncover. Just the typical warning that we do for everybody before we start. We are about to discuss this movie fully with spoilers. So if you haven't seen it yet and you want to, it's available over on Amazon Prime right now, so you can rent it there. And it's only ninety nine cents. At least really? in the at least in the states. For me, it was ninety nine cents. Was it not for you? I well, because I did it through Apple TV, so it was three ninety nine over there. Ah, so well, go go to Prime, people. Boo on you. <laughs> but you know what? Like I rented it, and then immediately after watching, I was like, I should have bought it. I like this movie. I should have bought it. But anyway, mm -hmm. so you can rent it there. Definitely worth a watch. And probably any good Del Toro fan needs to be familiar with this movie, as we just saw. It's number three on the list, so you should know this movie if you haven't. Give it a look if you haven't seen it yet, and then come back and listen to this episode. Ron, we both watched this last night, so I want to know how you liked it, but then also if you can kind of help us. There's a lot of characters in this movie, so if you mm -hmm. can, and I can help you, but it, let's like run through who people are, so because there's a lot of names to know. So, okay. But how did sure. you like it? I liked it. It was it was nothing like I thought it was going to be. I remember this movie coming out and the name of it, and I, I don't know why I thought it was going to be something like The Hills Have Eyes. That's I don't what remember I thought it was this coming out. I have no memory of this. I, don't I thought it was going to be something like that, you know, something like A Cross Between The Hills Have Eyes and Deliverance. Oh, okay. So so I kind of always steered away from it. But anyway, so this was nothing like that. It's a ghost story, essentially. Mm -hmm. So it's not like super high on the horror, for me mm -hmm. anyway. It's yeah. not super high on horror. It's just more ghost, uh, more suspenseful. But I really enjoyed it, yeah. I thought. In keeping with Guillermo del Toro's brand, very atmospheric. He always does a great job of kind of creating this atmospheric setting that kind of has undertones of, you know, you know, something deeper is going on. Loved all the muted colors um, mm -hmm. that they use, which kind of helped create that kind of vintage photograph almost yeah. aesthetic. And I loved all the little boys. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so there's Carlos. <laughs> There's Carlos, right? Carlos. And then yeah. uh, he's our entry into this orphanage. Like, the, and then there's the, other little boys that are like worth knowing. But like the the other main boy that comes into play, I think his name is Jaime. Jaime. The old, mm -hmm. the, the one who we perceive as kind of being one. the oldest. Yeah, the oldest yeah. of the bunch. Jaime. There's Carmen, the principal or the headmistress. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's um, the doctor who I think his name is Casares. Casares. Or Casares. And then there's Conchita, who I love, and I think she. I missed her name. I she. Got, we'll get to that, but yeah, I thought she got really. She got and the shaft. Jacinto. Jacinto, yes. The best. Can we say the words? Can we say the words to describe him? Who else am I forgetting though? Who else? That was kind of for the main, I mean, we're introduced briefly to Ayala. He's the, one of the guy, one of the men that drops Carlos off, that Carlos refers to him as his tutor, but he's as just there. Tutor. 
He's just there yeah. briefly. Yeah, there's Jacinto's two henchmen, but we henchmen. don't really... They're not around. I mean, one of them's called Pig. They call him Pig. Yeah. But they're not really around. But I think for major characters, we've covered it. I agree with you. The um, the, the visuals of this movie... There, there's another article that we, that we pulled for this movie that kind of talks about the kind of old Western type vibes that this film had, you know, in terms of aesthetics. Of the movies I've seen and enjoyed the most on that list, it's definitely been the stuff that I guess is veered more towards like horror-centric stuff. So even though I've seen... Hellboy, the Hellboy movies, and I liked them. Pan's Labyrinth is definitely more of a favorite of mine. This is more of like kind of a ghost story, but also kind of like a murder mystery. So just to kind of give everybody kind of like just a little background of this, it, it like I mentioned set during the Spanish Civil War, which I think was like the late 30s. So when this film opens up, it's, you know, some time, some at some point in time in the in the late 1930s. So the film opens with like a bomb dropping from a plane and then it kind of pans to a little boy laying on the ground bleeding. And I remember, and we'll come to learn that this little boy's name is Santi. And I, I remember watching it and thinking, oh, well, somehow he got injured from the bomb that fell from the plane or something like that. Like I, I correlated the two. But anyway, yeah, it opens with the, the mysterious death of this little boy at this orphanage. And then it kind of flashes forward to the, the present day of this time period where Carlos is getting dropped off at, at the orphanage. Carlos's father has been killed in the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. As I think a lot of the little boys there at the at the orphanage, maybe like either either their parents were off fighting or their parents had been killed somehow. So it's not, and it's not long after that that Carlos starts hearing things and seeing things and realizing that the place is haunted and there's a ghost there. Like I said, a little boy named Santi, who is the boy that we saw at the beginning of the film. So one of the things I I had said we would talk about, Ron, like in terms of, because this is a movie that's like over 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And so what I was going to be curious to learn in watching it was like whether or not it kind of still stacks up and kind of still holds up as like a a truly scary or creepy film. And and I I think it did. What do you think? I definitely, definitely do. And sorry, that's that's because it's, you know, a ghost story. Story. And like you said, a little bit of a of a murder mystery, you know, what happened to Santi, who did that to him, if anyone. So I think those are kind of kind of like the little black dress, you know, it's just timeless, it's classic. So yes, I definitely think it it still holds up and, and, still, and, and still relevant. So from a standpoint of creature wise, the, the ghost of Santi, that's kind of what I was going to be curious about because I was like, well, he's, this is an earlier film in his career when maybe the budget wasn't there, special effects might not have been there. I was kind of curious to see how this was going to hold up. Visually speaking, Santi the ghost is is still, in my opinion, very scary and creepy to, mm-hmm. to look at. I think wisely they did not like overuse mm-hmm. the visuals of him. Um, a lot sometimes you just see his like a shadow moving. So I think that was a yeah. good choice to not like overly rely on always showing you the visual of Santi. Right. And he kind of he kind of has like a a murky underwater look to him that mm-hmm. tracks because we will come to learn later on in the film that he essentially got thrown into some sort of water pit in the school's basement or underground and, and he got left to drown. So, you know, he's got Anytime you see him in the film, he's got blood floating in the air from his head wound and it's kind of floating around him as it would in water. And so I thought that that was really interestingly done. And talking about the effects of that, there's a review from Roger Ebert that came out when this movie came out. Roger Ebert gave it, I think like three stars. I don't know out of what. I don't know what Roger Ebert's rating is. Well, he gave it thumbs up. Like if I remember that show, yeah. Siskel and Ebert, it was always thumbs yeah. up or thumbs So he gave it a thumbs up. He gave it a thumbs up. But he, yeah. he writes from Roger Ebert's review that came out 
out in 2001. Any director of a ghost film is faced with a difficult question of portraying the ghost. A wrong step and he gets bad laughs. So to your point, what you're saying is mm-hmm. like if you if you show it, like, you know, kind of like the movie Jaws, like if, if it's not there, you're either going to not get the reaction you want or you're going to, yeah, it's going to go completely the opposite way. So he said, the ghost in the devil's backbone is glimpsed briefly. You, you hear it. And finally, when you see it, you understand him a little bit better as a dead boy. What happens at the end is not the usual action scene with which lesser ghost films dissipate their tension, but a chain of events that have a logic and poetic justice. I thought that that was interesting. He actually says the devil's backbone has been compared to the others and has the same ambition and intelligence. The others is great. I like the yeah, others. Yeah, I like that movie too. I think that's a good good comparison. So what did you think of Jacinto, the, our villain? Which, who I didn't understand, like initially, Ron, I didn't get that he was, I guess he's like the janitor or the caretaker. And some sort of grounds Some sort of grounds person, dude. And so like as the film's progressing and we're seeing just how nasty this man is, I was just thinking, I was like, what is this man's role at this school? Like, why is he there? It's a very bare bones <laughs> orphanage, which... Or school, whatever. Kind of looks like a it. mission, yeah. Yeah, because there's there's just him. There's Conchita, who I'm assuming does. Then there's a cook who I did. We even see her up until the very end when she's fighting the fire, right? Yeah, like, no. I don't remember seeing her at any other point in the movie. And then Doctor Casares and Carmen, so like five adults basically. Yeah. That Out are of this, kind of this huge like compound looking space, yeah, like um, a mission, kind of like a Spanish mission, but. You know, I, I didn't know what his role was going to be at first, but it doesn't take long before you kind of start seeing that he's just not a nice person. And he used to be a boy yeah, at the and orphanage. That's the thing. Yeah. It's like he used to be an orphan in that place. So you would think, right, that he would have more compassion for the yeah. orphans that are currently there, but he's kind of the biggest bully of them all, kind of terrorizes them. And I don't know, maybe it's because he sees himself in them. And isn't that kind of human nature to kind of despise? buys in others what we don't like about ourselves. So if, you know, it's kind of self-hatred turned outward. Yeah. Um, I mean, we never get his backstory. We never, well, like we, you know me, I always like an origin story, but we never really find out like, what's his deal? Why, why are you such a butthole? Like, I don't know. Does he just feel like the world has wronged him because Mm -hmm. he grew up in an orphanage? Well, dude, you're not the only one, you know? And so his, his, like his function there, guys, uh, is that he's, well, I mean, he's working there obviously, but he has other, he has an ulterior motive. He's looking looking for they have gold on the premises and I didn't I wasn't entirely clear like bars of gold mm-hmm. um, and and I gathered that this was gold that they were going to use to fund the cause is that my understanding right because again They're, the movies you know set during the Civil War so mm-hmm. which lasted from 1936 to 1939 I don't know that it was ever outright stated but my my perception was that like Carmen and Dr. Casares are on the side because there were two sides to the Spanish Civil War the the nationals and then the republicans the nationals were kind of like your right-wing conservative mm-hmm. you know fighting for traditional values kind of monarchists and then your republicans were kind of more your left mm-hmm. what, i guess we would now call kind of more left-wing pro-democracy kind of people so my and again i don't know if this was ever outright stated in the in the movie value i may have missed i don't it, think so my no. interpretation was that Carmen and dr casares are on the side of the the republicans so like yeah. the the leftist the pro-democracy yeah, they kept they, like multi, I think at least once or twice they kept saying the left. So I gather like that's yeah. the side. Yeah. So yeah. So they've got I don't know how they came up upon having these uh, all the, these the gold, gold bars, but <laughs> but yeah, they're using that to funnel to their their cause. To, their cause, right? But based on conversations that Carmen and Dr. Casadas have, it doesn't sound like things are going well. 
for their mm-hmm. cause, which would track, of course, with history and the Spanish Civil War, because obviously the nationals came out on top of that. And that led into Francisco Franco's, you know, near 40 year authoritarian regime, which actually mm-hmm. lasted until he died in 1975. So this was, you know, a thing that wow. within my mm-hmm. lifetime was still my early lifetime was still going on. So <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so at this point, things are not going well for, yeah, for so the that's, Republican side. So that's what his ulterior motive is, is there. He's just an opportunity. I'm sorry, opportunist who's trying to find that gold to take and I don't know, do whatever with. I don't know. He's just looking for for money to to flee. And I think he also just is like he has a lot of pent up hatred towards the place. We never really learn why, but he he really just wants to, I think at one point he even says as much to Conchita, who he is like posing as her fiance. I don't know if that romance is ever genuine given how much he portrays Not from her his in the side. End. <laughs> yeah. Not from his side anyway. But from hers, um, yes. But yeah, they're like supposed to be engaged and so I guess he like is fooling her into thinking that he wants to start anew and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, because she's talking about how they're going to go start a farm and he doesn't really strike me as the I'm going to be a farmer type person. He just he just looks like a sleaze like from the get-go. Yeah. A very good looking sleaze. Don't get yeah. me wrong. Very it's handsome a shame. man. It was a shame. <laughs> I remember wondering at like one of the earlier parts of the film if Jaime, who is like we said, the taller boy in the in the orphanage, we kind of perceive him, perceive him as being the older one. I kind of wondered at the beginning of the film if, if he was the one who might have killed Santi. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Um, Kind of, it was framed that way to kind of yeah. lead you to believe. And then, you know, he's initially kind of coming across as a bit of a bully himself. Bully. Mm-hmm. So then you're thinking, mm. In flashback, we kind of see what, what really happened that night. And so that is where we learn that Jacinto not only is just this terrible human who treats everybody like crap, but he also is the one who slapped Santi around and basically killed him that night. And Jaime happened to be out with Santi in the basement. They were like looking for slugs, collecting slugs. And when he, I guess when, what's his face? Jacinto like chases Jaime over to the water. I'm sorry, chases Santi over to the water. Jaime like run, like hides. Jacinto has no idea that he's down there also. And then so like he's witnessing Witnessing everything. kill Santi and then go and grab rope, tie him up and essentially throw him into this water. And what was really heartbreaking, Veronica, is like we, we learned this earlier in the film when Jaime accidentally falls in the water and the boys are like he doesn't know how to swim and so then Carlos jumps in to save Jaime we learned that earlier in the film so that then when when this flashback happens and we learn what happened to Santi it's all the more heartbreaking because we know Jaime couldn't swim so he couldn't jump in to save his friend he just had to stand there and watch this little boy be killed and watch him be thrown in the water and drown so it was really terrible in my head canon I choose to believe (laughs) that Santi died of his head wound before he got pitched into the water so that he did because that's my my like if you ask me what's the worst way you can die what's your fear worst fear of how you might die it would be drowning because it's slow and you know mm-hmm. it's happening that's interesting so that, that so, would be heartbreaking what about like do you ever i remember i used to have this question when i was little i may have even have asked you this question when i was little because i know i asked it of like people for a while when i was a little girl i was like would you rather die <laughs> i was like what is scarier to you or what is worse to you to die by fire or to die from like the cold, like hypothermia? What what would be, in your opinion, what is worse? I think fire, because my understanding of dying from hypothermia is, is you just kind of go off to sleep. Go to sleep, just, yeah. Yeah, you just go to sleep and you don't ever wake up. Yeah. Fire, fire hurts. I mean, I'm sure being cold, you know, you know me, I'm always cold and it's not pleasant, but of those two, both yeah. suck. Let me just... <laughs> 
be clear, both <laughs> suck, but I think fire would be the worst way to go of those two options. Fire and drowning. Yes, I agree. Drowning is, is a terrible way to go. So let's talk about Dr. Casares. He was a man, you know, because, you know, he's a man who he's a doctor, obviously. So he's there to kind of look after the boys and very kind, very, it seemed like a very fair man in dealing with the boys, a man who recites poetry. So he's kind, kind of, of a like, poet. Yeah. yeah, kind of, you know, holding on to this little piece of beauty in the midst of this ugly civil war. Yeah, I, I liked him a lot. Um, and he's in love with Carmen. He's yes, in love. He yeah, which kind is... of a unrequited, it seems, because it didn't seem like she was really reciprocating. Yeah, so Carmen, who we said is the, like the headmistress or the principal of the school. Yeah, he they're the, they're an older older lady, older man, and and so he just has this unrequited affection for her and loyalty to her, and so he kind of just by the end of the film, just being one of my my favorite characters. And at the end of this movie, in one of the articles that. Ronnie and I are going to include for you guys in show notes. They talk a little bit about where do I have it listed? Hang on one second, guys. Where is it? Hang on. Let me find it first. Do, we'll edit this do, out. Do, 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 we'll edit this out. Okay, well, I don't know where I have it. I can't find it. Well, now, what do you want to say? Well, so it's it's the article that kind of talks about like Del Toro sort of there's a lot of uh his love for westerns, mm-hmm. like old westerns that are kind of make for the aesthetics of this movie. So John Wayne's The Searchers, he specifically talks about that movie as being an inspiration for this movie. And he says, and I had the quote somewhere and I can't find it, but somewhere he says something to, and I'm paraphrasing now because I don't have the damn quote, but he says something to the effect of like that last shot of the devil's backbone is probably one of my most favorite shots that I've ever done because it's it's a direct reference to the searchers, you know, the old man in the door frame of this- The door frame. Of- this whatever, wherever they are looking out onto the quote unquote Wild West. If you've watched this movie, then you know that like, yes, he makes a direct reference to this um, at the end of the movie. Also like the bloodied old man making his last stand. We're talking about Dr. Cassettes now mm-hmm. uh, at essentially, you know, the, the highest window in the school or, or, you know, visually what we might look at as like a quote unquote watchtower. So that's where he goes to take his last stand where he's going to defend the grounds of the school and he's going to prepare to fight until the the bitter end, which he does. I do want to talk about these little boys. So yeah, we have Carlos, who's kind of our 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 entry into this or this orphanage. We kind of arrive there and we're kind of learning about it as he learns about it. There's Jaime again, who initially comes off like he's going to be the bully. And then he's got like his right hand dude, which I didn't catch his name. And then we have Galvez and we have Owl. 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 Who, who has, hasn't talked in I don't know how long and doesn't utter a word throughout the this movie. movie. I was really, I was like, don't kill Owl. We have Jaime's kind of character arc, I guess you can call it because he, you know, he's kind of in there giving Carlos hell and instigating things. And Carlos, even though he has a few opportunities to kind of rat Jaime out as the instigator never does. And then of course, like Valerie mentioned, when Jaime falls into that pit of water, which I'm not sure why it's there. Or even where that is. Like, yeah. What is why, that? Why, what is its purpose? Or maybe that's their water source. I don't know, but gross because there's a, gross. <laughs> a dead person in there now. But anyway, when Jaime falls in and he can't swim, Carlos jumps in and saves him and kind of that's the turning point in their relationship. And then we find out that Jaime's a bit of an artist. You know, he wants to, his dream is to draw comics. And yeah. and then I also loved how, you know, at the end of the movie, because Jacinto being the dirtbag that he is, he 
kind of sets the place on fire. He leaves a bunch of gas cans, sets it on fire. It blows up, killing Carmen, the cook lady who I didn't even know was there up until that point. Quite a few of the boys also. None of yeah. our main names. None of the main boys, people, thankfully, but, yeah. but kills a lot of the boys. Mortally injures Dr. Casadas, which we don't know at that point. And then he, Jacinto and his two henchmen kind of lock all the boys up in a room. The boys know, or at least Hyman knows, that they're not getting out of this alive. That, mm-hmm. that this is when he tells them all that Jacinto was the one who killed Santi, so he's probably going to kill all of them. They're not going to get out. So they decide to kind of put their history lesson. They had had a history lesson earlier with, with Carmen, you know, where it showed kind of prehistoric men banding together to bring down a big mammoth. And so the boys, that's what they decide to do. They're going to- um, I didn't pick up on any of that. Where was, what was I doing? It was I a didn't... brief scene there in okay. the classroom. That's when we kind of I mean, see Jacinto's I... drawing. He's drawing in class. And that's yeah. when Carlos tells him, you can- you draw can draw the pictures and I yeah, can and write. So that's when, at this point, Dr. Casares has passed away. He's died mm-hmm. of, you He's know, bled out post, or whatever. At his yeah. watch post. But his ghost comes and, and lets them out, which I thought was just really and touched, I, touched my heart. We didn't even talk about Conchita and what happens to this woman. Oh, yeah. So after the explosion, after Jacinto sets off that explosion with the gas tanks and whatnot, the, the remaining people who are still alive gather together and she says, you know, I'm going to, if I walk all day and all night, I will get there to whatever the next village for help I'll get there by noon so she Which takes is off the on first the first idea that we have of how far out in the middle of nowhere this orphanage is yeah yeah they're like it's it, it truly looks like the wild west when you look at images of, of everything outside of the grounds of this school it looks like just nothing they're out in the middle of nowhere so she sets off on foot and has been walking whatever I don't know like a, a night passes or something she's walking into the next day on the dirt road and on you know on comes this car and lo and behold, it's freaking Jacinto and his henchmen because he takes off after he does that. After he sets the explosion, he takes off. So he's on his way back, I guess, to finish the job. And so he confronts Conchita, who at this point sees him for what he is, sees him for what he is, knows he's a monster. And he gets in front of her and he's like, they're watching. Just say you're sorry and get in the truck. And she's like, I'm not afraid of you. She says it multiple times and, and he pulls out a knife and is threatening her. He's like, say you're sorry. They're watching. And she refuses. And so he freaking and stabs her in the side and kills her. And I'm like watching this and I was like, you bastard. <laughs> and I was like, oh, please have it, I, have a yeah. good, uh, not a good end, but you know, a horrific end. That right. I was like, is deserving you, of your, you better get what's coming to you and then some because you're a and piece you know, of crap. I'm sure that there's probably some symbolism in that exchange that they have being that this is the Spanish Civil War. I'm sure there's probably some sort of metaphor going on there between. Yeah. The, the left side, the Republicans not mm-hmm. not giving in, you know, going right. down to the last. Um, but yeah, it probably yeah. went over, certainly went over my head. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And a lot yeah. of American audiences' heads. But I'm sure, as, as I'm sure there's symbolism between the unexploded bomb that lands. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this thing that's ticking because I think one of the that boys is, even that says is that it's That is an interesting thing. And I, and I guess I didn't ticking. mention that at the top. Yeah, like at the top. So we open on the scene of the bomb being like there's dropped There's consequences coming that we don't that we, know yet. That we don't know yet. That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah, I never mentioned, guys, the bomb doesn't go off. <laughs> the bomb gets dropped, but it doesn't go off. So, but yeah, the whole time Jaime is like, I don't believe it. I think if you put your ear to it, you can hear its heartbeat. You can hear it still ticking. So that's an excellent metaphor is like there's some there's some unknown consequence in the air that is yet to come. The ending is where we see the little boys have, they've killed 
Jacinto. They've dropped him into that water. They've given him to Santi. Given him to Santi because Santi said, bring me Jacinto. I want Jacinto. And so they do that. And and Santi in that way has his his justice. The little boys just have to go out there into the I want to know what happens to them. I mean, we know from Carmen's- Some of them are limping. I'm like, they need- Poor Galvez. (laughs) They need medical attention. Poor Galvez reminds me of Gavroche in the- in Les Mis. They're so yeah. small. They're so little. And we know it's it's a day and a half or more trek for an adult. So you right. can imagine for, for little... Who's not I injured, know, yeah. I want to know what happens to all these little boys. <laughs> that's where the movie ends. It's that wonderfully framed shot of the ghost of Dr. Casares kind of standing mm-hmm. in the doorframe, although... You know, we just see, I think, like his torso and the little boys, you know, walking down. And Jaime is carrying Owl on his back. Yes, yes. Okay, hang on. That reminds me because before we move on from this, gosh darn it, find the quotes, Valerie. Oh. I, I, Several years I, later. Hold on. Um, okay, I must have. Pr- okay, hang on. Let me. Maybe I can find it in, in my document notes. I'm so mad at myself. I feel like I'm missing a sheet. But it was a beautiful, the opening of the movie, Veronica, where which opens with a voiceover. And it's yeah. we come to learn it's Dr. Casadas. And I thought that the 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 monologue, if you will, uh, of that was so beautiful that I had purposely and then he, book, he bookends it at the end. He right? bookends the, the, the movie with that monologue, and I thought it was so beautiful. I wanted to make sure we said it, and then now I don't have it in front of me. Pues entonces, I don't know if you're able to find the quote on your feet, Veronica. I don't have it. Okay, here it is. Here it is. The vo- opening voiceover words of the Devil's Backbone. What is a ghost? A tragedy condemned to repeat itself time and again. A moment of pain, perhaps. Something dead, which still seems to be alive. An emotion suspended in time, like a blurred photograph, like an insect trapped in amber. See, it's so beautiful. It's and I loved it. My, and, and yeah, you're right. He, they, he bookends the, the movie with that passage. And I thought that was really lovely. All I right. did, just out of curiosity, because I was curious why the movie was named The Devil's Backbone. Uh, and mm-hmm. I know that Dr. Casadas in there somewhere because he's got jars of like, you know, dead yes, infants, like, like, in, like in jars of, I mean, I'm sure maybe it wasn't formaldehyde, <laughs> but something, something to preserve them. And he talks about how, I guess, The Devil's Backbone is, because like it was an exposed spine. Spine, and, yeah. Like a, like so a, like I, a, I gathered it was supposed to be like some sort of genetic abnormality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I looked it up because I thought, is this a, like a real thing? I couldn't find anything about it being like an actual genetic abnormality or deformity, but it is a plant. There's a plant called the devil's backbone and there's uh, a geographical, what do you call it, thing in Texas that's called, and there's also one in West Virginia, but I couldn't find anything about So that might be just something made up for the movie. I guess because he says the lore in the movie for in the movie's world, the devil's backbone, I guess the lore is that it's a mark of an unwanted child or something like that. So that I guess since this is an orphanage, maybe. Uh, see, I, don't I thought know. he said, I thought, yeah, I thought it was like something like that there was lore that it was like, a, yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. An unwanted child. I guess in my brain, I was reading that as like a child that they feel is like destined to be evil or something like that. But it is a plant, you said. So that's mm-hmm. interesting. And, a, and the name of some geographic, what's the word? I don't know. I don't geographic. know what you're saying. <laughs> like a geographic. Region? <laughs> the geographic feature. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, like a geographic feature, like a land. Okay. In, in the landscape. There's <laughs> one in Texas that has that name, and there's a place apparently in West Virginia. Okay, well, we'll have to like include, maybe we can include some links to photos of that stuff for you guys so you know um, you what the devil's backbone is, at least here in Texas. So that's cool. If you go over to Criterion.com, and I'll link this for you guys, they called The Devil's Backbone, quote, one of the most personal films by Guillermo del Toro and among his most frightening and emotionally layered. 
He expertly combines gothic ghost story, murder mystery, and historical melodrama that, like his later Pan's Labyrinth, reminds us that the scariest monsters are often the human ones. Okay, so earlier this week, guys, and when I say earlier this week, it might have been like yesterday. I don't remember. I've lost track of time. But sometime in the recent past, I sent Veronica this article that I will make sure to link for you guys. But it's, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Bruja? Why Many Latinos Love the Macabre? Exploring the Fascinating Link Between Latin Culture and the Horror Genre. Now, Veronica and I have talked about this topic on the show here before. It's kind of like one of the things that birthed this show for us was the relationship that Latin culture has to the horror genre in in full. So as I was reading through this article, I, I swear I was like, have, have we already shared this? But but we haven't because it just came out like last month. So yeah, you've talked about it, how yeah we make up a big a lot of the percentage same, of the audience. Exactly. It covers a lot of the same stuff that we've already talked about. So that's why it feels so repetitive to me because we've already talked about it. But but just just to sort of let you guys know, there are some good things. Definitely read this article in full for more. It talks about Guillermo del Toro for one, uh, as being one of the names that have that have like become big exploring creatures of darkness. They specifically also reference Satanic Hispanics, which we've talked about on this show briefly before. We haven't watched it yet. It is now streaming, everybody, so you can go and watch it. And so can Ronnie and I. And so we, there will be an episode coming up on that on that one, I'm sure. But this year, a new horror anthology, Satanic Hispanic His, Hispanics, tells tales of, horror, of terror across different regions of Latin America. Um, and then you've got, you know, your latest installments of the Scream franchise, which up until very recently starred Melissa Berrera and Jenna Ortega. Just more from the the article, they talk about like the relationship of, of like religion and horror. Not all Latine Christians are Catholic, but Catholicism itself has a deeply root has deeply rooted history in Latin America. And we've talked about this before on how that kind of component makes its way into horror films and has for decades. So it's it's not anything new. So definitely give this article a read. They also talk about like how horror draws on Latino culture cultural traditions. So, you know, La Arona, El Chupacabra. I didn't realize this, but this year, Universal Halloween Horror Nights offered up a haunted house entirely centered around these myths, Veronica. It was called Monstruos, the Monsters of Latin America, which sounds amazing. And I wish that I could see that. So... They also talk about like horror as social allegory, which kind of like got me thinking because a lot of the horror movies that you and I have looked at so far, Veronica, this year, or since we've started this show, in a lot of them, both in films and some of the books we've read, there's there's the real life horror going on in, in the background of a lot of these stories. So I, I kind of feel like it's a way of processing our collective grief, our past traumas. And so maybe even through horror we are also allowed to envision different outcomes and perhaps like in, in certain cases, more just outcomes. So like in the case of La Arona, Veronica and I looked at Jairo Bustamante's La Arona this year. We have an episode on that movie. It was a really great movie, but, you know, kind of re-envisioning a more just ending to the real life atrocities that that movie kind of touches on. So I, I think that that's, it was an interesting read and it just sort of further drives home the point that we've been saying all along that, you know, Lat Latinos are big on horror for a variety of reasons. We're not a monolith. There's no one reason why we're big on horror, but there's definitely box off office numbers to back that up. So give that, give that article a read. Yeah, definitely like reading through it. I was like, I swear we've talked about this, but we have talked, it's because we have talked about this. We've talked about it a lot, but it bears repeating because 
because, you know, new people find the show all the time. So if you don't know what we're about, that's what we're about. What I was going to ask you is of the three movies that kind of have that more stylistic and kind of horror-esque vibe to them of his movies, Pan's Labyrinth, Crimson Peak, and The Devil's Backbone, how would you rate those? Ooh, I, I, so Pan's Labyrinth was my first movie of his to see. And so Mm -hmm. that one, and it's been a long time since I've seen it. So, but I feel like that one, I have to rank number one just because it was the first one I saw. It was visually nothing like it that I had seen at the time. And so Crimson Peak would come along much, much later. And in watching that movie, I I remember watching Pan's Labyrinth and being genuinely scared and horrified at what I was looking at. And then by the time Crimson Peak came around, I was like, "Well, this is quintessential Del Toro. Like, I'm not, I'm I'm expecting this. What a beautiful, horrifying creature to behold." I was no longer like terrified by it. I was more or less just like amazed by the creatures. I was like, "Look at how look at this." I really liked this movie. I really liked mm-hmm. The Devil's Backbone. I might have to stick that ahead of Crimson Peak because oh, I just so we I, have I, the I, we have the same ranking because I was going to okay. say the same. <laughs> I was going to say Pan's Labyrinth, definitely number one. Uh, I, I, this Devil's one really, yeah, I Peak. really liked this one a lot. And and enough that I, this is the first one out of out of all the movies we've done so far that I went back and watched it like morning of our recording, like knowing that we were going to record later today. I turned it on just to have it on. So I also think I like, even though I shouldn't like it, the way the ending of both Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone, they kind of still leave you with unanswered questions. Yeah. I want to know what happens to the boys, you know, who's going to take care of them who's gonna love them um and of course pan's labyrinth yeah did she die was she really well so i had was to go she back really to, of that fairy tale world i had was to go real? back yeah i had to go back and look at the ending because i remember thinking i i initially i was like well at least this ending ended with them alive unlike pan's labyrinth but then i remembered how pan's labyrinth ends and i was like well but does she die like maybe she just was always meant to live in that quote-unquote under underworld or whatever and, and maybe that's that is a happy ending it's just not her alive in the human world, in the in the living world, I should say. Mm-hmm. So we talked about that article. We'll link it for you guys. You guys take a look at it. Also, we want to remind everyone that the next Scream Sister Book Club book has been chosen. Uh, Ronnie mentioned it on the last episode. We're reading Peñata by Leopoldo Gap. Leopoldo, am I saying Gout. right? Gout. Leopoldo. Leopoldo Gap. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll be discussing that book on the show in January. And the reason we're telling you about it now is because the point of book club is we are we want to invite you guys to read this these books along with us. So read Peñata with us and then share your thoughts on it so we can talk about we can mention that on the on the episode. Full disclosure, Ronnie and I are not professional book reviewers. I don't think you would want us to be professional. Did anybody book think reviewers. we were? <laughs> Did anybody think we were? I don't know. We're not like, professional just, anything. Don't be fooled. We we barely know what we're talking about on a good day. We are just people who are taking on these new to us books. These are books we've not read before, and a lot of times we don't even necessarily like read stuff ahead of time to find out. Like we go in blind. We take on these books and then we talk about how we liked them or what we thought about them. And that's it. So please don't take anything that we have too seriously. Take it all with a grain of salt. Your yeah, takes just may, our opinion. Yep. And your takes may be very different from ours. And that's excellent because if you share your takes with us, then we get to bring other perspectives to the book club shows, which is what we want to be doing. So definitely read with us and be part of the conversation with us. Yeah, Ron, absolutely. I, and actually, that reminds me when I was kind of looking up, just to kind of get a, an, 
a general idea because certainly, you know, I'm not a history major of my, I'm not an expert in the history of my own country, much less the history of someone else's country. (laughs) But when I was just kind of looking up like when the years of the Spanish Civil War, I came across like some quotes that are attributed to Francisco Franco, who was Mm -hmm. the Spanish general who came out on top and and ruled over Spain up until 1975. One Mm -hmm. of his quotes was, which gives you an idea maybe of where his headspace was, there can be no room for dissent in a nation's development. No. (laughs) No. I mean, yeah, just no. So we welcome dissent, all opinions, as long as you're constructive, as long as you're kind in expressing it, because one man's trash is another man's treasure. Something I don't like, might a trope I hate might be a trope that you love and vice versa. And so art is subjective. Books, plays, movies, Mm -hmm. they're all subjective. Yes. So just because we may not like something or just because we may love something doesn't mean that you hold that same opinion. Yes. So we invite all, all voices Mm-hmm. And, and and please don't ever, ever, ever not pick up a book because we said we didn't like it. Like that would be such a, that would be such a mistake. Please always, you know, if, if a book sparks your interest, go for it. Go and Actually, <laughs> you know, cause I, you know, I, I belong to Goodreads, um, although I'm not as active as I used to be, but I still go on there to like read reviews of books that I'm considering. And I always look for, I'm not just looking for the reviews from people who who love it. In fact, I don't put a lot of stock in reviewers that I know give everything four or five stars because nobody loves everything, right? It's just, (laughs) you know, maybe you do, but I just don't put a lot of, uh, I don't lend a lot of credence to those reviews. I look for people that can look at something critically and say, you know, because I want to know, you know, what they thought Mm -hmm. of the pacing or what they thought of the characterization or the plot. Because sometimes in those negative, not, they're not negative, but people that are not afraid to point out. Like constructive criticism. Yeah, Yeah. constructive criticism. Like what what they thought could be better, you know, also informs me, you know, it helps me make a decision on whether I want to invest in the money to buy a a certain book as opposed to maybe renting it from the library, not renting it, borrowing it from the library. Yeah. Um, because it, yeah. 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 So sometimes those constructive, critical thoughts give me more information than from someone who's just blindly saying, oh, I loved it. It was great. Yeah. All the yeah. time. So definitely, so. definitely know that you guys, we encourage you to share your your takes with us. Ron, is there anything, aside from Book Club Book, is there anything else that you're taking, tackling right now in, in the book realm or show realm, whatever your taking in? I've been reading more lately, but I've been reading just like some historical, you know, mysteries, just as kind of something light, light reading. Well, I did want to mention to everybody, I, I, so we, I have been working my way through Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant, and I did finally finish that. And it was, it was one of those books, Ron, I, I was in the car parked waiting for one of my kids to get out of school and reading it. And so I, I finished it. I closed the book. I just like sat there and I think I just let out like this, like, audible sigh. And I just like stared off into the out the window and just stared off into space lost in thought. The book just like sat with me like that after I finished it. So I really liked it. I'm really glad that I that I gave it a read just because like I think I said on one of the previous episodes, this was history I was not at all familiar with. And so it's a really tragic story. The full title of the book is Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. So it's kind of almost like two books crammed into one. The book itself is not super big, but you know, two different stories there. And so- Are you going to watch the movie? I am, but <laughs> but I, I might I, I might wait to stream it just because I, I can't 
like I know I will have to get up to pee and I can't, I, can't, I, I hate having to go to the bathroom in the middle of movies, is, you know, because it's just like, especially a movie like this, like there's no way that I'm going to be happy to miss any part of this movie to go pee. So I may just have to wait until it comes to streaming. See, that's why I've been reading just kind of like my safe historical mysteries where there's always an answer to everything and there's a, <laughs> a you know, closure. I'm just not been in the headspace for anything super heavy well, and that is or the depressing. Thing to, yeah, that is the thing to know. So this is obviously this is a this is a tragic story and it's certainly hard to come away from it feeling like there's any sense of justice because for one like the 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 members of this particular family this Osage family waited for years for any semblance of justice people people in the family died not ever you know knowing the truth about what happened to their family members so and and for for everyone covered in this book there is and he talks about it in the book there is an untold number of other Osage people whose deaths were not classified as mysterious or homicides or what have you were not investigated. So like God only knows, you know, the God only knows what the what the true number is of Osage people who were murdered for these nefarious plots. So it's it's heavy content. And so take that into consideration if you're going to tackle this book from a writing standpoint, the reading is very accessible. It flows well. I, I didn't look, I didn't do this is an audible book, but I imagine this might be an audible book that this is the kind of thing you listen to, then then you might be able to get through that and, and enjoy that. So, but just know that this is heavy, this is heavy content. It is a true story, obviously. It's a tragic story. And it's a story where it's like there's not necessarily closure at the end. You're just gonna come away with with knowledge that you may not have had before. So whether you read the book or you watch the movie or you do both, my my two cents, I really am glad that I read this book and I would recommend this book to anybody that wants to give it a read. And that's that's much be so on Goodreads, every year they have their, I don't know what they call it, but their awards choice awards, basically, where, you know, readers oh, nominate. I heard about this. Yeah. It's a popularity contest. So, but in the, in the first round, both Vampires of El Norte and Our Share of Night, which two books that we've read are both, <laughs> I do not expect either one to make it into the next round, but oh, they, yeah. at least, they were at least were in there in the first round. Uh, in the first round. Yeah. So. <clears throat> yeah. I think it was, it was uh, Mariana Enriquez who said something similar to what I was saying earlier about how like a lot of, maybe there's something to be said for the, one of the reasons Latine culture taps into horror so much is because of the ways in which it kind of gives us an outlet to to process some of our real life trauma and pain. I think she's made similar similar comments in the past in interviews and stuff, just sort of talking about how like Latine horror often draws on real life horrors of of the culture and, and our history. So so just FYI, we'll, we'll be digging around for a movie to watch for upcoming episodes, you know, movies. So be on the lookout for those. This is a perfect opportunity for me to plug. Usually, if we're not announcing this stuff on the show, we're announcing this stuff on social media. So if you are, first of all, know that you can always find us at ScreamSister.com on www.screamsister.com. Uh, and then you can find us on Instagram and threads at ScreamSister. We're over on YouTube at Scream Sister Pod. And then you can always email us, ScreamSisterPod at gmail.com. So yeah, we will we will, we will for sure be posting. We're also on TikTok. And I don't know where we are on TikTok. We will be posting on all of those places. We will we'll remind you that we're reading Pinata, that that's our book. And then we will also notify you about what the next movie that we're going to be talking about on the show will be. So if you have um, any movies to recommend. Yes, we welcome your recommendations. So books definitely, or movies. Books or movies. 
or shows, whatever, whatever floats your boat, send it our way. And that's it. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> we don't have a sign off, but we'll, we'll see you next time. Oh, gosh. All right. Bye. All right. Scream Sister is a Nest production hosted by me, Valerie, and Veronica. Editing by me. Music by Omar Chakor. Production support for this episode provided by Lorenzo Villarreal and Alex Street. Listen to new episodes of Scream Sister every other Monday, and don't forget to give us a rate and review. It is the best way to help us grow. <laughs>